If you have your copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to look at Revelation chapter 19. So we're, today we're going to look at the last half of chapter 19 and all of chapter 20. Um, before I read the last part of chapter 19, let's review a little bit. So um, we said if we're going to understand Revelation rightly, that there are kind of four preliminary principles we have to have kind of nailed down. We have to at least wrestle with those because anything that we're looking at together actually flows out of these four principles. So does anybody remember one of the four principles? God always finishes what he starts. That's really important. So Genesis 1 and 2 tell us how everything is going to go. So when we get to the book of Revelation, we're reminded that it's connected with Genesis so that as God set up the world and set us up to live in a certain way, it is going to happen. There is no sin or rebellion that can stop God from wanting us to be what we are supposed to be and making us into what we are supposed to be. So the whole point of Revelation is that God always finishes what he starts. Revelation is connected to Genesis. The Bible is one complete story. Revelation isn't this random book that's thrown in that tells us this really weird message that isn't connected to anything else in the Bible. God always finishes what he starts. Anybody remember another principle? Right, that's great. We need to think about time in the way God thinks about time. So when you read the New Testament, what you find is that starting with the coming of Christ, the last days began. So the last days started with the coming of Jesus. That means that Revelation is not a book that begins to tell us about the last days. Revelation is actually a summary of all that the Bible has been teaching about the last days. So we need to view time the way God views time. All right, another principle, we got two left. I love it, yes. Perhaps the most important one, Jesus did it. Jesus actually accomplished something that means, remember when um, the angel appeared to Mary and Joseph and said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will make his people savable. Nope. It's not what it says. It doesn't say you'll call his name Jesus, for he'll make salvation possible. You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Remember that? So we actually believe Jesus is a literal Savior. He actually saves people. He actually did something through his death and resurrection. That means that Revelation is just the unfolding of what he has accomplished. Do you get that? Because if you're not settled yet on whether or not Jesus actually accomplished something, you're going to have a tendency to give evil far more leeway than you should. You might even focus on that far more than you should. But if you believe Jesus actually accomplished something, guess what? You can be full of hope and confidence because he is who he says he is. All right, anybody remember the final one? All right, that wasn't one of our principles, but that, but, but, but no. All right, Gwen, I'm sorry. That was too harsh of a response. I apologize. Yes, 
the Bible is not, the Revelation is not a code book, it's a picture book. In other words, what we talked about is we ought to approach this book with a posture of humility, right? So that we're not trying to crack the code with Revelation. That Revelation is just left for all the experts. And the more details you get into, the more you'll unlock the true meaning of the book. That's not it. It's a picture book. It's meant to be read like a child. It's given us images that are meant to fire us up at the deepest possible level and connect with us at the deepest possible level. So that we might think in a different way, we might act in a different way, we might feel in a different way. Yes, images are meant to connect with the totality of our being. And this is another picture, this is a picture book, and we're going to read more about images and pictures today. So Gwen, you are, you were exactly right, and I apologize for um, that harsh response there. You're exactly right. I ought to have a posture of humility. <laughs> yes. And it is true. Um, I ought to have one too. Let's look at Revelation 19. I want to read verses um, 11 through the end of the chapter. So uh, listen to this. This is God's Word. And if you have your copy of the Scriptures, leave it open because I'm going to summarize chapter 20 for you because we're doing the rest of 19 and all of 20. Listen to this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were, flowing, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Did you hear that in Psalm 2 in the call to worship this morning? Yeah, same language. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the, on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. How about that? So remember, this image is picture book. And for those of you that may be visiting and just exploring Christianity, we're not actually looking for a literal person riding on a white horse to do that, okay? Like this, these images are communicating truth to us. So let's pray and let's ask God to help. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word to study, to probe. We know that your word is inexhaustible. 
we ask that as we look at this together today, that you might encourage us and strengthen us. That if there are areas in our lives that you need to challenge us and rebuke us, that you would do that. That you would equip us for every good thing that we need to do your will. That we would understand ourselves better. That we would understand the good news that you proclaim. The good news that Christ is Savior and Lord and King. Holy Spirit, cause that good news to get into us more and more. All for your glory. Amen. Here's the point this morning. This is the one-sentence statement. God wins and better things are yet to come. Got it? That's the point. God wins and better things are yet to come. That's what I want you to take out these doors and certainly take into your heart, but, but that's what I want you to know. God wins and better things are yet to come. Here's a little more detailed description of the roadmap this morning. We're going to look at the final battle, which is the last part of chapter 19, which we read. Then I'm going to summarize chapter 20, which is four brief glimpses of the last days. Got it? Final battle, last battle, four brief glimpses of the last days, and then so what? That's our roadmap this morning. You got me? God wins. Better things are yet to come. Last battle, four glimpses, so what? Let's dive in. Look where chapter 19 begins. It begins with heaven being opened again. Remember that? Second time this has happened in the book. The first one was in chapter 4. Remember it was that time when John saw this open door and he didn't really know what to do. It was as if he was kind of standing there staring at this open door wondering, should I, shouldn't I, should I? Until the voice says, John, come on in. Well, that was a time when John was allowed to come in and get an amazing picture of the throne room, chapter 4 and 5. Remember that? This time, it's not so much so that we can get in, but so that someone can get out. The, heaven is op- the heavens are open here so that this great warrior and his army can be let out. So that's why it immediately goes to a description of this great warrior. That there's a battle that is happening. Matter of fact, a last battle that is going on. And we have this unbelievable description of this great warrior. He exits heaven riding on a white horse, symbolizing battle, symbolizing war. And what does he look like? His eyes are like fire. Did you catch that? His head has diadems. Did you catch that? Out of his mouth was a sharp sword. Did you catch that? Do you see, this is communicating the image to you of this great warrior that he exits to go into battle and he sees everything as it truly is. Fire often symbolizes holiness as if to say he looks at everything and everyone through the lens of holiness and sees everything for what it actually is. On his head, diadem meaning authority. So he's riding this horse with great authority, seeing everything through the lens of holiness, seeing everything truly. And out of his mouth is a sharp sword. What do you think that is? 
the Word of God, truth. This is why he's recognized as faithful and true. Did you see that description in the verses as well? And even more than that, did you notice that there is a name that's given to him that only he knows? I got nothing for you. That's just what it says. I don't know it. Surprise. But he does. It's almost hinting at there are things that Jesus is going to do and who he is that we haven't even begun to imagine. That's kind of fun to think about, isn't it? So here this great warrior is going out. He's called faithful and true. His robe is dipped in blood. Did you notice that? That's not his blood. That's the blood of his enemies. As if to say he rides out to conquer The last phrase, if you will, that describes who he is, is this. It's a tattoo that seems to be written on his leg. King of kings, Lord of lords. Do you get the sense that this guy is supreme? This is our savior. This is Jesus. He's the great warrior. He's the one that looks at everything through the lens of holiness and sees things as they really are. He is the one that has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who speaks the word of God and and conquers by truth. Beloved, didn't he conquer you by truth? He came into your life and because of his faithfulness and because of truth, he won us over, right? If you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, just know this. This is not a description of somebody who comes after you and puts a gun to your head and says, me, you're not. This is someone who comes into your life through the truth. That thing that's gnawing at you in the back of your mind, those questions that you have, the things that happen in your life that you're trying to figure out, he is pursuing. He always has and he always will. He is the God who pursues by Truth, the thing that is unmistakable that you can't deny. You can try. You can try to suppress all kinds of things, but you know that it's real. Jesus goes into battle and he is victorious. So much so, look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 19. Let's get graphic for a moment. There's an angel who stands on the sun and the angel summons all the birds to come and feast Feast on the dead bodies that are there from the battlefield. Did you catch that? By the way, I have no hesitation about telling you how graphic this is, right? Because we live in a a time in which is hyper-sexualized and hyper-violent. So don't tell me that this bothers you. Because the Bible is far more sexual than we often are comfortable with. And it's far more expressively violent than we're comfortable with. And it's true. Sometimes we just need a good dose of reality. Sometimes we just need to realize that spiritual warfare is absolutely real. And by the way, if you understand, when you start plugging in truth, you start realizing, ooh, yeah, when Christ cuts me, it's kind of bloody, right? Ooh, when he gets after my soul, there are some scars that I have at times, right? I mean, let's not make a mistake about this. Truth is absolutely real, but it's sharp. Let's make no mistake about this. Coming to Christ and following him means you got to count the cost, right? I mean, this is a grace. The grace of God is violent. 
Let's, let's, not, let's not think there's just some little uh, uh, expression of God winking at our sin. The grace of God is violent. It catches us. It arrests us. It brings us out of ourselves. And man, that is painful. Because like we've confessed, who doesn't like to be boss, right? So the angel summons the birds and says, gorge yourselves, feast. Then you notice what's before that. There's like this description of the army that follows Jesus. He leads out on the white horse and then his armies are with him. Isn't it fascinating to recognize that as you read through this together that uh, there's almost nothing mentioned of the army that comes with Jesus? Isn't that interesting? It's like there's all these descriptions about the great warrior but there's not much mentioned about his army. By the way, you know who his army is? Us, followers of Christ, that's the army. You do, and there's almost nothing mentioned there. You know why? Because by comparison, we don't matter. <laughs> now, I'm not saying we don't have lots of work to do. I'm not saying that, that there aren't a lot of, that there are things that we, we need to pour our energies into all kinds of things in the kingdom. But by comparison, we don't matter compared to the great warrior. We're just riding his coattails. Do you understand, do you see, do you under, can you fathom that? And, and there's no description given of the battle. Isn't that interesting? It's not as though we get to understand that, that the false prophet and, uh, and, and the beast who are drug out and sent away forever, which is what the text tells us. There's no description of like the difficulty of that, but we have a, a battlefield full and the false prophet and the beast are put down. By the way, you remember the counterfeit? Here's the final battle where they're put down forever. But we have no description of the battle. It's not like we get the behind-the-scenes glimpse of Jesus sends this army to cover the left flank, and then this happens. And then over here, evil really started dominating until Jesus came in. No, we don't get anything of the battle. We don't get hardly any description of the army at all. Do you know why? Because all the emphasis is on the great warrior. I've said it. I want to say it again. All the emphasis is on him. And the key to understanding that, at least from my perspective right now, is this. Look at verse 13. We've heard him described as faithful and true in these verses. He is the king of kings, lord of lords, it's tattooed. He's got a name that only he knows. But look at this description. This is the key to understanding this great warrior. He is the word of God. Did you notice that? Do you see that in verse 13? Now, for those of you that know your Bible a little bit more, help me out here. Do you remember the human author of, of this book named John, the Apostle John? Do you remember him? Do you remember he wrote a gospel account? Remember that? Help me out here, those of you that know your Bibles a little bit more. This is how his uh, gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Right? And then you continue to read, and it says, and nothing was made that was made without the word. Do you remember that? Do you understand what this is telling us? This great warrior is the one who created everything. He was in the beginning and actually predates the beginning because he's God. He always is. 
But he spoke and he was the living word that created. And it just so happened that the word of God wrote himself into the story. So that as John says, we beheld him. And what was he full of? Grace. What was he full of? Truth, right? And here we see him at the very end. And who is he? He is the one who is bringing everything to its telos. In other words, he is the great creator. He is the one that wrote himself into the story that sustains everything that had to enter the story in order to redeem. And here he is at the end saying, I complete it all. I'm the one that brings everything to its goal. Yes, that even means the final putting down of evil. This is amazing stuff. It's amazing. Well, let's look at the four glimpses. Chapter 20 gives us four glimpses of the last days. We're going to cover these quickly because God does. We're going to spend a little bit more time on the first two because God seems to spend a little bit more time on the first two. Let's go through these quickly. Four glimpses of the last days, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 20, tell us that Satan is bound. You see that? Satan is bound. He's restricted. You wonder, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, John would use that language because he heard Jesus talk about this with his own lips. If you go back and read Matthew chapter 12, around verse 28 and following, if you read Mark chapter 3, around verse 20-something, I can't remember right now, read John 12, around verse 31, John heard Jesus himself talk about this thing that he's mentioning in the first three verses in chapter 20, Satan being bound. Jesus described his own coming to earth in this way, I am going to bind the strong man before I plunder him. How in the world can I take down Satan? Well, I can't unless I first bind him, then I can plunder his goods. In other words, Jesus bound Satan through his death and resurrection. And if that is the first time you've ever heard that, then let's go and create another image just for a second. If you were to take a globe and you were to have a flashlight and you were to shine the flashlight on the place that God's people predominantly resided before the coming of Jesus, where would it be? Palestine, right? Little strip of land, Israel over there, remember that? Middle East. That was the place where God's people were primarily located before the coming of Jesus. True? That means everywhere else, Satan was just roaming and doing whatever he wanted, having his day. But after the death of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, after the ascension of Jesus, please tell me where God's people have been since then. All over the world. We are in Greenville, North Carolina, we believe. Do you know why that's possible? Because Satan has been bound. Because he's been restricted. He's no longer able to deceive the nations. Do you understand that? And more importantly, will you believe it? God's people have spread throughout the world. There is no government that can kill Christianity. There is no militia or army that can kill Christianity. There is nothing that can wipe out Christianity. Do you understand that? 
Will you believe it? Will you help me believe it? Beloved, let's go another layer. If that little analogy of the flashlight doesn't work, then listen to this. Do you remember in the Old Testament after God's people rebelled that they built this tower called Babel? Do you remember this? Because they were making themselves big up to God, right? They were trying to make themselves more powerful than God. So God scattered them. Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Remember how Revelation uses the book Babylon, uses the term Babylon? Why is it doing that? Because it's the full name of Babel. It's saying that Babylon is representative of every society that tries to be man-made and build itself up to the, fact, to the point that you don't need God. And do you remember what happened when the Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2? That people were speaking tongues and languages they didn't know. Do you remember this? What was happening? Babel was being reversed. The gospel has been going to every nation, to people in their own language. The point was never the speaking in tongues. The point was that they were declaring the gospel in languages that they did not know which was the opposite of what happened in Genesis 11. God has been unfolding his plan and spreading his kingdom throughout the world. I know we need to move on. So then look at this in the first three verses of chapter 20. Remember, these are short glimpses. Just imagine if I was going to go a long time talking about this. It says he's bound for a thousand years. Did you see that? Did you notice that in the first part of chapter 20? A lot of confusion over this especially in America, especially in the South. I can't clear all that up right now, but I can tell you just briefly. If you want to talk about this more, happy to do so. Beloved, when it talks about a thousand years, just understand that, remember, plug this back in. Revelation is a picture book. I don't know of any symbol or number or picture that was meant to be taken woodenly literal in the whole book. This is another symbol. It's another image communicating to us completeness. It's not a literal thousand years any more than the 144,000 was a literal number. It's meant to communicate another way of completeness. In other words, the first century understood a thousand years as to communicate a time in which whenever God's ready, it's done. They were borrowing image from the Old Testament that God would be faithful to his covenant for a thousand years. That didn't mean a literal thousand years. It meant inexhaustibly. It means that when you read Psalm 90 and other places in the Bible that a thousand years to, the God, to God is as like a short time, a, a day. It's meant to focus us on God and his timing. Remember, thinking about time the way God does? It's not literal. It's meant to communicate that from the, from the, sec, from the ascension of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus until his return, that is the time that is being spoken of with a thousand years. Isn't that what we've seen? For 2,000 years, Satan has been bound and God's church has been advancing. It's been way more than 1,000 years in a literal sense. And it's going to continue that way until Jesus returns. How we know when 1,000 years is up? Well, Jesus will return. When you <clears throat> pursue ordination in our denomination, there's a lot of things that are involved. 
You got to write papers, you got to take oral exams, multiple oral exams, all this kind of stuff. And a number of years ago, there was a candidate for the ministry who was asked this question, what is your view of the millennium, a thousand years? And his answer was, I'm enjoying it. Satan is bound. First three verses. Four through six kind of hit home a little more. They describe for us where followers of Christ go when they die. They go to be with Jesus. And just think about how much this must have meant to John's original audience. You remember this figure named the Apostle Paul in the first century? You remember that he died? Remember that? How about Peter? You remember, you remember Peter? The guy that ended up being crucified upside down? You remember him? How about John the Baptist? The guy that was beheaded? Beloved, the original audience would have known those men, either personally or through someone else. And John is saying all those who have even lost their heads are with Jesus now, ruling with him now. I know we take that for granted in our country. Someone that we love dies, that we know is a believer, and we just immediately think, oh yeah, they're just with Jesus. Things are, things are fine. Maybe they struggled a little bit more to understand the enormity of what it meant. We just saw Jesus 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Where is he now? Where, where are those who were killed for him? They're with him. 7 through 10 reminds us that Satan will be released and then removed. The time is coming before Jesus returns that Satan will be released and then he will be finally removed. And by the way, this is nothing new. We've been prepping for this for the last five plus chapters. We know that evil is going to advance. We know that Satan desires to kill and wipe out God's people. We know that. It's nothing new. But the day is coming that he'll be removed forever. No more. And finally, 11 through 15, just tell us about the judgment. Final judgment. That when Christ returns, there's going to be a judgment. And on that day, it's either going to be your resume or Jesus' resume. In other words, in advance of Christ's return, he is offering you and me his resume. Saying on that day when your thoughts and words and motives and actions are examined before the one who's faithful and true, it's either going to be your resume or mine, Jesus said. And in advance of that judgment, he's saying, I'm offering you my resume. I'm offering you to live by my resume. I'm offering you to recognize that your resume isn't enough. Doesn't matter how many good things you think you've done that have outweighed the bad things, it's not enough. Salvation is by grace. Life everlasting is by grace. It's living life based upon what Jesus has done, not what we have done or will do. And again, that means your greatest failure doesn't define you. It means your greatest success doesn't define you. The gospel saying that Jesus does. So admit your greatest failures. Own 
the fact that you want to take credit for your greatest accomplishments and flush it and cling to the resume of Christ because the judgment's coming and it's final. Well, that leads us into the so what. What do we do with all this? Three things. One, there will be a finality to evil. Let's try to take that in. And I realize if you're exploring Christianity, and even if you're a follower of Christ, this may be a really hard subject for you. Thinking about evil, thinking about suffering, I get it. You may have questions like, well, if God's good, why does evil exist? Valid. You may have questions about the origin of evil. Where did it come from? Why? You may have questions that are a little more specific and personal. Why here? Why this person? Why this place? Legit. Valid. If you want to talk about that stuff, I I would be more than happy to share with you what I'm learning. But I want you to understand, as valid as your questions may be, as important as they are, and as I am encouraging you to figure out answers to those questions, don't miss the point of this because of that. Your questions are valid. But don't miss the point of what God is telling us throughout these chapters. That the Christian view of reality is that one day, death and Satan and evil will be no more. I don't know of another worldview that holds that. I don't know of another view of reality that believes that. That one day, death and sin, disease and Satan himself will be no more. Take that in. And understand that God doesn't give simplistic answers to these very complex questions. And your questions are valid and real. Ask them. Find someone to talk with. If you don't want to talk to me, talk to someone else. But search because answers are there. And just the tip of the iceberg to prove to you that God doesn't give simplistic answers to the idea of evil and suffering. God suffered. Do you get it? That even though evil is real and suffering is real, you have a Savior who can understand what suffering is and enduring evil. He gets it. That's not a simplistic answer. But it's the answer that says your question is absolutely valid and Jesus can say, yeah, me too. That means when we think about the finality of evil, let's go all the way back to the garden. Do you remember the serpent tempting Adam and Eve? You remember that? Has God really said, well, right here we're getting yes. He has. He meant what he said. And Satan, you got nothing left to hang on to now. You're done, buddy. You tempted, we fell, and you've been happy ever since. Not this day. You're done. What God says is real. He always finishes what he starts. Two, God rules the world. God rules the world. These chapters are telling us that God rules the world. There is one reference point for the entire universe, and it is the throne of God. 
It's the throne of God. Evil will never and can never overtake the throne of God. It just can't happen. God is ruling the world. There's one reference point for the universe, and there should be one reference point for your life and for my life. That's it. One reference point for our lives. It's the throne of God. So let me press that further. Where are you getting your purpose in life? Where are you getting your mission in life? Where are you getting your meaning in life? Because the only place that your purpose and motive and meaning come from is the throne. That's it. If you are getting purpose and motive and meaning from any other throne anywhere else, it's a counterfeit and it's unstable. And just stop. By comparison, this is what matters. By comparison, nothing else matters. Everything else is unstable. Everything else will go away. Beloved, God is ruling the world. And oh, by the way, I know that we live in a republic. I get it. So we can struggle to understand what God is saying here. But let me tell you, the one that rules the world is not democratic. He's a monarch. He's a king. And it's good. And every system of human government will fail. It will fail. But God is king. And to reiterate it from earlier, he is the suffering king. He knows what it's like to live with his people. Beloved, our God is in control. Let's get even more practical. This is the third thing. This is teaching us about the life of faith. It's teaching us about the life of faith. Did you notice that the last battle was focusing on the guy on the great white horse. His name is Jesus. Did you notice that all the emphasis was on him? How in the world do we fit that with, when I look at my life, I, I notice that I take an awful lot of L's. I look around and I see an awful lot of loss. I see an awful lot of losses. How in the world can I fit that this great warrior who is victorious, how does that comport? How does that fit with the losses that I take in my life and the losses that I see and the losses that I perceive that are going on everywhere? How in the world does this fit? Beloved, church, this is meant for us to refocus our attention on Jesus. And stop living by our perceptions that oftentimes are tied to things that are inherently unstable. This is meant to refocus our attention on what Christ has done. This is meant to refocus our attention on the one who leads into battle and who is the conqueror. And that means that we ought to really think about our lives and whether or not and maybe to the degree to which we are stuck trying to live our lives for him rather than living our lives with him. Do you understand that difference? Because there is so much that we have heard, so many books that are written, 
So many things, so many messages that are given at conferences, so many things about how everything is about us doing things for God. And what that can mean in our heart is this, and, and, and this, this demands that you're willing to think about your life and think about your heart. When we are stuck in that rut of living our life for God, we can end up thinking that any advancement that I'm going to make in my walk with Christ is up to me. It means that I got to do this for God. It means that if I want to advance in my walk with Christ, then I'm the one that's got to do it. You know what works with that? This fundamental commitment of insecurity. That I'm not really sure what God thinks about me. I'm not really sure what his posture is toward me. In other words, fundamentally, there is an insecurity about your walk with Christ. Therefore, out of that insecurity, we're thinking about how much we have to do for God because we not only want to serve him, but we want him to be pleased with us and smile at us. It means that insecurity can lead to the fact of thinking that God is often, you know, maybe he's happy with me sometimes, maybe he's not happy with me sometimes, but maybe there's just this always low level of, maybe he's just dissatisfied with me. Does that sound familiar? In some ways, one of the worst expressions of this is that Jesus has lived and died, rose from the dead, and is in heaven, and we just need to get to work doing what we're supposed to do, because if we do everything that we're supposed to do for God, Jesus will come back sooner. It's horrible. Beloved, we are supposed to live our lives with God. In other words, Jesus is the one that is leading the charge. Jesus is the one who is pursuing our hearts. Jesus is the one who is dealing with sin in my heart and in your heart. Jesus is the one who is pointing out the rebellion that remains within our heart. And that means that if I'm living my life with God, that I want Jesus to do that. It means that if I'm living my life with God, then I can say I'm learning to repent and I'm learning to believe. It means that if Jesus is leading things in my life, then Jesus is also saying, hey, I'm taking the lead here. Come on and join me. Yes, it, it, the expectation is effort. Yes, we have to work out our salvation. All because Jesus is leading. And that means that we get to functionally live our lives from a position of security, not insecurity. It means that in Christ, God has looked at us and approves of us. So that our obedience and our faith are never trying to get his approval. Our obedience and our faith are illustrating that we have it. It means that the decisions that we make about our money and about our time and about our mission and about our motives and about our purpose and about meaning all flow from the reality that God has loved us in Christ. So we're not trying to get his approval either. We already have it. We're not trying to get him to be happier. He already is happy with us. And just to be clear, 
that implies our repenting of our sin and believing in him. Think of it this way. If we constantly live our lives thinking we have to do everything for God, how many times are you motivated in that line of thinking through shame and guilt and deficit? In other words, the way to get you to do something in your life is to say, oh, well, you lack in this area. Come on, step up, right? It's to point out the deficits in your life and the deficits in your walk so that you will, by guilt and shame, act on it. Beloved, the gospel is not wanting us to operate out of a deficit, but out of a fullness that is in Christ. Do you see? We have all that we need in Jesus. We are never operating out of deficit motivation. It's always grace motivation. It's not that we're supposed to focus on ourselves and see how terrible we are. It is to focus on Christ and see how amazing and wonderful and powerful he is in our lives. And wanting to live our lives out of his fullness because my deficits are legion. But his fullness is forever. And his fullness is so great that I can acknowledge my sin. Because remember, those can be the accusations of the enemy, right? So he not only uses the deficits that we have, he also uses that shame and that guilt. And how easy is it for us to live out of that mentality rather than from the fullness of Christ? John God is trying to get us to see through John that Jesus is the one who's leading the battle. He's the one that's pursuing. He's the one that's summoning us saying, come on with me. I'm in the lead. You just stay right there. I'm in the lead. But you come with me because this victory is certain. Let's live out of his fullness. Shall we? You want to try to do that?